you know, primarily the most important thing you need to do in terms of ability to go back and raise funds again is stick to your investment thesis. It's so critical. If you say you're going to do one thing and you, you tell your limited partners, this is what we're going to invest in, and you do something completely different, good luck ever raising a fund ever again. And by the way, it's not just in the case that you have a bad outcome. I mean, even in the case where you have a good outcome, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. From the Insight Studio, this is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem and the Rocky Mountain region, the founders, funders, and contributors, and the stories of what they're building. I'm Stephanie, and on today's show, we have Les Craig, a partner at Next Frontier Capital, talking to us about the journey of Next Frontier's now three funds, what they're looking to do with their newly closed $80 million fund three, and what Les's story is and how he got to Montana. I am a partner at Next Frontier Capital, which is an investment firm that invests in early stage technology companies. So we're located in, in Bozeman, Montana. And I do what most venture capitalists do. There's, there's really five things that, that we do on a daily basis. And different days, you know, different weeks, different months, it's sort of a different percentage of our time is spent doing those things. You know, the first is we, we raise uh, funds. So we seek out institutional investors and high net worth individuals when we're in a fund fundraising process and they make commitments to our a limited partnership. And then essentially that those commitments are how we fund investments that we find. So raising a fund, number one. The second thing we do is we find investments. So we curate deal flow. We take inbound from potential early stage companies. We get referrals from our network. And that's how we you know, sort of source investments. The third thing, which is which is one of my favorite things to do, is we actually make investments. And so that's, that's a, an exciting process that usually involves significant diligence and research, uh, lots of time getting to know founders, getting to know founders from the perspective of people who know them well, so references, those things. And then ultimately, it's, it's about negotiating terms and getting, getting to a signed deal. And so that's, that's really a, a fun part of what we do, number three. The fourth thing is we manage those investments. So we manage our portfolio. You know, to date, we've, we've made 35 investments across three funds. So that's a lot of companies to keep track of and be involved in. But usually it involves taking a board seat or a board observer seat in those companies. And so we get, we get involved at sort of a very kind of senior level in terms of the company's, you know, management and, and operations and mostly interacting with founders, CEOs, and those, those sorts of folks. And then the last thing that we do is we, you know, we will hopefully through that process of, of what we do number four in terms of managing the portfolio is we're, we're creating portfolio value, helping those founders raise follow-on funds. And ultimately, number five, one of the most important things that we do that, that allows us to go back and do number one again is uh, we, we create liquidity or we help liquidate the portfolio. And typically in a fund life like, like ours, uh, like all three of our funds, it's about a 10-year process. So it, it's certainly a short, long game <laughs> for us. But over 10 years, you know, hopefully all of the investments that we made are liquid and we, you know, we, we return capital to our limited partners. And, you know, ideally, you know, it takes 10 years to, to liquidate the portfolio, but we're getting markups in, in, and realization. And un, there's realized and unrealized gains over that 10-year period that allow us to go back usually about every three years to raise a new fund. So we're typically investing funds on a three-year, what we call sort of an investment period. And then we're obviously reserving, you know, a, a portion of the of each of our funds for follow-on investments in, in those in those portfolios that we initially invest over the first three years. So that's what that's what I do. That's what uh, venture capitalists do on a daily basis. 
That, that sounds exhausting to me. I think that there's <laughs> a lot of pieces in there that people don't realize. And so I'm curious, like how, like for you in Next Frontier, do you actively participate in all of those five stages? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I would say as a partner, certainly the expectation is is yes. I mean, as a partner at a venture capital firm, you you must do all of those things. For me, joining the firm as, you know, the first, I would say, you know, employee or partner, uh, other than the, the managing partners, uh, Will, Will Price and Richard Hargis, I ended up fulfilling, you know, sort of in the first first fund uh, that I joined for, for fund two, I did a lot more of some of those functions than other things. But as the team grew, like for instance, deal sourcing. Fund two, I did very minimal fundraising. I did a lot of deal sourcing. I mean, on average, I was by myself, you know, kind of looking at about two to 300 companies a year over, you know, kind of during fund two. And and that was a lot of inbound. I did some deals, so I, I made a few investments. But now, as we fill out the team, what ends up happening typically is the partners need to focus on those functions that are further down in, in this, you know, the five that I laid out. So, you know, managing the portfolio, taking board seats and doing deals. That's the primary focus of, of what I'm doing now because we have an amazing team. We've made some amazing hires to, to help fill out some of those other, other functions. That's great. One of my favorite things about VCs that we rarely talk about or even think about is that you have to raise funds too. (laughs) (laughs) I think as I'm more on the founder side, there's just something like really nice to know that you have to go out and grind also and ask people for money. That's right. You all just closed fund three. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to raise that fund and what it's like to go out and raise as a VC in Montana. And what does that look like? Yeah. Well, well, first I have to say, I think it's, it's such an important function of being a venture capitalist. I think a lot of people don't realize and that because, you know, it helps you like anything in life. I think you're better, you're better and more well-rounded and more suited to do anything when you have empathy and when you have perspective, you know, and you share in the, in the, in the, the struggle with other people that are doing the same thing. So it's not quite the same, obviously, as, as when founders are raising, but it's still quite challenging and and quite difficult uh, to raise a fund, especially the first few. I wasn't around for fund one. I'm, I'm every day when I, you know, if I think about, where we come from, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at, at how my, my partners did that because that is that is an overwhelming task to, to think about raising that first fund. The nice thing about VC is if you if you stick, you know, primarily the most important thing you you, you need to do in terms of ability to go back and raise funds again is stick to your investment thesis. It's so critical. If you say you're going to do one thing and you you tell your limited partners this is what we're going to invest in, and you do something completely different. Good luck ever raising a fund ever again. And by the way, it's not just in the case that you have a bad outcome. I mean, even in the case where you have a good outcome, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. And that that's that's a big no-no in VC. So you have to be firm in your thesis. You have to have a well-formed thesis. You know, similar, it's similar to what I would say is a, you know, a business model for uh, companies. You know, you have to have sort of a well-formed strategy and and be solving a real problem. So there's some similarities there, but that's, that's important kind of rule number one. The other thing that's challenging, I think, for VCs is the frequency with which you have to go back to the well. So we raise, you know, on, on essentially a three-year cycle, right? So every three years. And you might say, well, yeah, founders have to go back, you know, sooner than that. But, but the reality is 
we cannot make new investments without new funds. So there's a timing piece that's really challenging where, you know, you're making the last few investments out of, you know, like, for instance, fund two for us, end of 2019, we're making last few investments. It's like, okay, we need to start thinking about raising fund three so that once we make our final investment, but we don't know when that's going to be, we're ready to write the first check for fund three. And you just, you can never control deal flow. You can never control, you know, the the pacing of investments, but you always have to have, I mean, you should always have dry powder to make good investments when the opportunities, you know, present themselves. So that's a challenge, you know, managing those cycles. And sometimes it's less than three years. And so you're coming back to your LPs. Generally, you want some, you know, significant markups and some good inflection points to say, hey, not only are we doing what we said we're going to do, but we're doing it well. <laughs> look at look at the look at the great things that are happening in the portfolio and and the creation of value that we're we're helping across the portfolio. So there's a timing thing. There's a, you know, there's a, you know, just a momentum thing. You know, we started, we kicked off our fundraise in sort of late February, mid to late February. Within the first month, we were super fortunate to have about 40 million in commitments. And a lot of that came from our existing LP base, which was a great affirmation that, you know, we were doing our jobs. But, you know, we, I'm, we're, I'm just super thankful for those commitments because that momentum, you know, our, our fund two was 38 million, you know, out of the gate to have a first close of 40, that was enough to continue executing on our strategy. Now we had bigger things that we wanted to do with fund three, which is why our target, you know, was, was 70 million. So, but this is the other challenge is in VC, it's not like a, it's not like a founder where you go out and you raise and typically a process is going to take about six months in VC. It's, it's about, it's a year. I mean, it's, you're signing up for a year. And I have found across the two funds that I've been a part of, you know, you get this momentum towards a first close that helps drive those commitments in and then there's this eternal period. You know, it took us 11-ish months, 10, 11 months to get the next 30 million. So it took us one month to get the first 40, 11 months. And it's just, it's a grind and it's exhausting. I can't even tell you how many folks, um, and typically, you know, somebody hears about the fund, they reach out, you pitch them, you talk to them, you develop a relationship, they introduce you to five other people, maybe they pass. I mean, you just never know where the leads are gonna come from, never know how they're gonna spiral, but it's, it's exhausting. And then you get to the final close, you get close to the final close, and that typically drives the final. You know, we, we got to about 70 million and we had about a, a month left and we still had tremendous interest. And then, you know, next thing you know, and in the final month, another 10 million closes, which which was great, you know, allowed us to kind of, you know, even surge above our, our original target. But those are some of the, just, just the dynamics of, of raising a fund. And, and it is an exhausting process that happens pretty much every two years because you're raising and then you have to close, you know, so, so it's, it's a lot of prep. It's a lot of materials that need to get made. It's a lot of just keeping up with your network. It's, it's a constant, I I should say it's not an on off thing. It's a constant process. I mean, we're, we're essentially, you know, the communications that we have with our LPs and maybe people that were interested that didn't commit, it's already in process as we're prepping for, for the next fund when we don't even know when that's going to be. So. So you're in fund three. I don't know if this is right. So correct me if I'm wrong. I want to mm-hmm. be basic here. Fund one, I kind of think of as a pre-seed startup. Like you're you're pitching a vision. You have no product yet. Yeah. You have no traction. So you're very much at the seed stage. You're fund two. You hopefully have some portfolio companies, some traction, and you kind of raise on that. And then I've heard fund three can be really tricky because sometimes LPs are really expecting to see results from the first two funds. And 
and base a lot of their decision making around that. Did you all see that? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you described it exactly sort of how it evolves, typically fund to fund. You know, so th- you think about when should a portfolio start to get liquid? Too soon is a good thing, but not a great thing. Too late can be troublesome and scary, you know, <laughs> even if you, you kind of hit the targets. But the challenge, I think, is, you know, how do you, when, when LPs typically they, they're going to expect, or, or as, as partners, what we would typically expect is in years five to seven, is when you start to see liquidity flow back. And, you know, one, one of the best things I think that we did is we, we really benchmarked our funds and our funds' performance against, you know, some of the, the vintage years of VC funds that are out there through some public and private data sources. And, you know, when you start to benchmark against funds and you can show that the performance of your funds, both with respect to what the DPI or the capital that you've returned based on what's been paid in, you know, you can start to say like, hey, we're in the top quartile or we're in the you know, top 5%. And, and those, those are really great ways to communicate how well a fund is performing as it relates to you know, the funds from the same vintage year that are, uh, that are investing in the same stage of companies that we are. So that's really the best that you can hope for. You know, by the time fund three, by the time the investment period of fund three is, is complete, you, know, you kind of fast forward three years, we've got another two years to go because we, we started investing after the first close. You would expect fund one to be kind of near the end of, end of life in a good way, right? You know, most of those companies you would expect to either be liquid, have sold, been acquired, IPO maybe, wouldn't that be exciting? Or not operating. Sure. And so fund four will be interesting because we'll have an entire, you know, pretty much an entire fund through the full cycle. Fund two will start to be, we'll get to be the period where there's, you know, hopefully some liquidity start. We've already had a few early liquidity events, three, three exits in fund two already, but hopefully some more, you know, fully developed exits by the time we're raising fund four. Sure. But you're right, fund three is a tricky one. And I'll tell you, I'll just add too, one of the biggest challenges of a third fund is if you started at sort of the seed stage, you know, kind of our, our progression, 21 million, 38 million, you know, and then 70 million, 70 million target end up being 80 million. The fund is not yet the size where institutional investors can take a bite. So it's hard to get a 10 or $20 million check from an institution because the fund size isn't big enough. So, you know, generally they want to be less than 10 to 15% of a fund. So unless, you know, if their minimum check size is 10, 15, 20 million, that means unless you're raising a $100 million plus fund, they don't even really want to have a conversation or they don't even really want to consider it. And it's much easier to build, you know, an 80 to $100 million fund when you can get checks in the sizes of 10, 15, 20 million. You only takes a couple of those versus... If high net worth individuals or family offices uh, are investing, you know, generally 250 to a million bucks is, is a very reasonable and a great commitment to the fund. But it takes a lot more of those checks to get to a sizable fund. So that's that's another challenge. Yeah, for sure. I want to talk a little bit about how your thesis has evolved over the three funds and then what mm-hmm. it is today. So tell me a little bit, like what was the what was the vision, the thesis that Will and Richard raised on in fund one? How did it evolve in two? And then what was the vision for this third fund? Yeah, it's a great question. I lo- and I love telling the story this story. So thanks for asking. <laughs> so the first fund, the primary kind of vision and strategy for for Next Frontier Capital was 
to provide access to Montana's best and brightest early stage founders that you know, historically had been overlooked just because, unfortunately, you know, because of geography. So if you look at the amount of VC dollars that were invested in Montana from 1995 to 2015, when the firm was started, it was about 100, I think PitchBook reports it's 144 million or so. And it's it's actually a really, it, that's, some people may say, wow, that sounds like a lot of money. Well, it's, it's actually depressing. It's really a, a super low mo- amount. It put Montana typically any given year, two to three million bucks a year would put Montana either 49th or 50th in the country in terms of VC investment. So we were not in a good place. And despite that, what Will and Richard recognizes, there were plenty of founders that if they were in the Bay Area, they would be getting funded. And so, you know, people like Michael Fitzgerald of Submittable, people like uh, Mike Myers of uh, Quick. And it's like, why can't these people raise money? And, and the, really the thesis was, well, it's probably because there's just not a VC presence here to get them through that kind of valley of death. And so and the original thesis was, if we could raise a fund, if we could provide access to capital to these Montana founders, could we get them to follow on funding, to coastal funding? And if we could get them to follow on coastal funding, could we get them to liquidity, to an exit. And if you look at a company like Phoenix Labs, or you look at a company like, like Blackmore, Sensors and Analytics, you know, two Montana-based founders that were backed in Fund One, both both exits, those two companies alone really proved out that it was possible and, and, and possible in an amazing way. I mean, you look at Blackmore, I think they had, you know, maybe 15 employees or so when we invested. You know, now over 100 employees, an Aurora office in Bozeman. I mean, it's such an amazing success story and a company that has just unlimited future potential. So that was the thesis. And that proved to be, you know, the, we, we proved it out. Or I shouldn't say we, I, I wasn't involved then, but it was really exciting to watch. So Fund 2, the, as it evolved, Fund 2 we raised. So that was a $21 million fund, 10 investments. Fund 2 was a $38 million fund. Now, now the dilemma is... 38 million, is it possible to deploy that sort of capital over a three-year investment period in Montana? And I would say the answer is no, like not, not doing venture class deals, it's, it would be impossible. And so this, what this, the way the strategy expanded with Fund 2 was, how could we become involved in additive to other ecosystems in the Northern Rockies? And in doing so, that strategy also benefits Montana founders because now we start building relationships, we start doing deals with regional investors. Now we we participate in their ecosystems, we help them put deals together. They come into our ecosystem and they pay, you know, pay capital into our ecosystem. So, you know, one of the stats we're most proud of is for every dollar that we've paid into a Montana company, we've attracted an average of $6.12 of outside capital to, to into Montana. So to date, that's 28 million we've paid into our Montana portfolio alone, and we've attracted 174 million of outside capital into Montana tech companies. And the crazy thing about the VC dollars that I quoted earlier, you know, 144 million over a 20 year period from 2015 to 2020, that dollar amount, so five year period, not 20, and five, uh, 506 million is the number. So basically a 14 and a half times annualized increase. And it's not just us either. It's right. There's, there's a lot of great things that are happening. You know, you look at what Two Bears doing up in Whitefish. You look at just the activity of other firms that have, you know, come here to partner with tech companies and invest. And so the, the, the secret is out now and there's, there's folks, I mean, we get calls on a weekly basis from people looking for the next great Montana investment. So that, 
that has certainly changed and it's gotten very exciting for us as a, as a result, I think, of the Fund 2 expansion strategy. And now with Fund 3, what we're seeing and what, what we're really focused on is, is, is being the same way that we provided access to capital for Montana founders that were overlooked in Funds 1 and Funds 2. We're looking now and we're executing on a strategy to do the same in what we call the Intermountain West. And so the region that we define as the Intermountain West is primarily Montana, first and foremost. That's always, you know, that grounds us in in our original vision and strategy. As a secondary strategy, Utah and Colorado and being, some people say, well, those, those ecosystems, they already have like household names, seed stage firms. And so what? Why would you go and compete there? And that's not what we do there. We don't compete there. We're additive at those ecosystems. We've, we're finding unique opportunities to, you know, to fund companies with partners in those ecosystems. And so, so that's, that's how we're active in Colorado and Utah as kind of a, as a secondary strategy. And then I would say kind of the tertiary leg of the strategy as we define the Intermountain West is Wyoming and Idaho. Frankly, Wyoming and Idaho, and typically, you know, I would say like Boise, Coeur d'Alene, Cheyenne, and Jackson Hole, are really the, the kind of the focus cities, but more broadly, like we would look at a company anywhere in either of those two states, same way as we would look at a company anywhere in Montana. You know, they don't just need to be in Missoula or Bozeman, you know, the typical, the usual suspects. But what we're finding is very similar environments in those places as Montana was in 2015. And amazing founders overlooked tremendous potential for those ecosystems. And so we're building, we're actively building partnerships with VCs there, same way we did, you know, early stage in Colorado and Utah. So our really goal and our strategy is to be the, you know, the preeminent source of seed capital, you know, the household name and brand for a you know, founder-centric fund that works with uh, entrepreneurs in the Intermountain West. And that's for, for early stage. And that's that's what we're executing on with Fund 3. That's great. I want to talk a little bit about that last part and and understand who you fund. Like if someone's listening to this, they have an idea and they're like, is Les going to write me a check? Um, <laughs> let's talk, a li- let's talk yeah. about that so they know. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's a curious topic. It's very much hard to understand the VC world when you haven't been in it. I know I'm like, I'm a Montana born and raised. And when Will came on the scene, it was like, wait, what is this? How does this work? So, I mean, I, I know a lot more now, but talk to me about like, who are you funding? Who are you looking for in particular? Yeah. So this is something that has been a very kind of personal quest, personal and professional quest for me, is getting the message out. There's so much mysticism about VC and early stage VC, and it shouldn't be that way. And I remember even when I was a founder, I didn't really understand it fully. You know, I had read all the books, you know, Secrets of Sand Hill Road. And actually that book wasn't out yet, but the Venture Deals, Brad Feltz book was out when I was raised. We should like pause and say, everyone read Venture Deals. I've just read it three (laughs) times in six months. And every time I learn something new, but keep going. Yeah, no, it's great. I I agree too. And it's one of those ones you just, you have to brush up on and and reread. And even when you're doing venture on a regular basis or you're you're a founder that's raising with regular frequency, it's, it's it's worth brushing up on. So anyway, the biggest thing that I always try to emphasize with founders is like, who, you know, am I the right stage? Am I this? Am I that? First of all, the process of investing in any, I would say in anything really, but especially venture, it's very relationship based. So if you're questioning, am I right for you? I would say that usually the best thing to do is figure out a way to navigate the relationship first. I always say for a Montana founder, by the way, it's never too early. 
I'm, I will take a 30 minute call with any, or coffee or, you know, a lunch with any, any Montana founder that's out there to help them, you know, navigate. Cause it's just, like I said, it's part of my just personal, you know, personal and professional goal for me. And I think it's very important to communicate these things. And often it's very individualized, right? It depends you know what the business model is it depends on what the what the long term strategy for the founder is but it's never too early to, uh, to you know to to start a relationship especially as it relates to somebody that's ultimately going to back you i mean one of my favorite favorite kind of vignettes is you know a student at msu that i i had a phenomenal relationship with when when he was on my staff at the blackstone launchpad and then started a couple companies continued to mentor him and then Fast forward five years later, you know, Next Frontier Capital led an investment, and this is uh, Sam Lucas, a special project. We we led an investment in Sam's company and brought in, you know, arguably one of the most impressive seed stage syndicates in the history of Montana. I mean, investors from Austin, investors from Boston, investors from uh, Colorado, all came in on this deal. But the reason why that deal happened was because of a relationship. So that's where it always starts. I mean, it, it's never, you know, the idea or you know, the track record of the founder. I mean, those things tend to get a lot of press and brand, but it's always, we roll it back to the relationships. So it's never too early to start the relationships. For us in particular, so as we have evolved our strategy, I mean, if you look at our Fund One portfolio, we, we invested in a water purification company, a LIDAR company, a biotech company. We've started because of the size of the fund and, and, the, and the strategy that we're executing on. It's very difficult to be a one-size-fits-all at this point. So that's, that's where we've gotten very focused on our strategy as it relates to, I mean, frankly, the partnership and our backgrounds and our expertise and, and also our networks. Because the more and more we've invested in B2B SaaS companies and enterprise SaaS the more our networks have grown there, the more our relationships have strengthened. And so that's a natural, you know, kind of kind of tool that we can we can bring to to help founders lever, you know, when we make investments. So primarily we focus on B2B, that's business to business, SaaS, software as a service. And for companies, so it's very traditional kind of you know venture venture model now, and, and in particular, what we want to see is some sort of validation of of a product. And so, what does that mean? I mean, that's very general. <laughs> but we want to see real customers, right? We want to see paying customers. You know, for Montana companies, we we like to see revenue in the tens of thousands of dollars per month. So you know, call it twenty to thirty thousand a month. And some some people listening might say, well. If I was doing ten to thirty thousand dollars a month in revenue, why would I need investment? If that's the question, then it's probably you know your your aspirations for growing a uh, you know a venture back company maybe aren't there, and that's okay. I always tell people there's nothing wrong with that, but you know ultimately for us it has to be a founder that has a desire to get on the a, a massive path to growth. You know, strap onto the rocket, and you know it, it's typically it's going to be multiple series of investments leading up to. A significant outcome someday. So that's typically what we want to see is there's there's some exit exit potential and the founder is aligned with with you know that that potential and there's you know a large market and and they have demonstrated traction and and you know from there we, we can get really specific but I'd say generally that's that's kind of the high level criteria. So I, I just want to make sure I capture this so everyone that's listening can call you and set up a thirty minute meeting. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we're talking about 
post product. So you're not funding pre product very often or never. You want to see revenue for that product and Mm -hmm. like some sort of traction. And it needs to have kind of a TAM or sorry, a total addressable market that is big enough to have an exit that makes sense for essentially your LPs and and how you build a fund. And and the reason why that's important, Steph, that's an excellent summary. The reason why it's important is because we have a strategy that we have to execute on for our limited partnerships so that we can continue to raise new funds. It's not just about providing access to capital. If we don't execute on our strategy, we won't be able to provide any access to capital in the future. For so that, sure. that's why yeah. it's important. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. And so it makes a lot of sense for a moment though, because I I also, you know, I meet with founders every day too. I I talk to them and it's really hard in Montana because there's very little going on essentially earlier on than when you're ready for them. So what is your advice to founders out there in Montana that have a great idea, have maybe market validation, Mm -hmm. but they don't have a product yet and they can't afford to build it because it's in tech and it's going to cost millions of dollars? Like, what do you tell them? Yeah. So I've been in this situation before. And I tried an approach. It actually worked pretty well, but it didn't end up getting to the point where I was willing to raise venture capital and, and you know start a company. But I mean, one of the things you have to do, like one of the intangible kind of behavioral or personality traits of a founder is you have to be scrappy. Like you have to figure out how to get it done. And if you're if you're already coming to the table saying, I can't get it done because nobody will give me money. Like, great, now do something else. Like, figure out some other way to do it. And so what I did, my second company was a company called The 20. And my co-founder and I had this idea that we were going to build kind of a, a data science platform that allowed businesses to do data science without hiring a data science scientist. And this was in, you know, you may say like, oh, well, that's those are dime a dozen nowadays, right? Like BI platforms and things. But I mean, this was, you know, this was back in 2014. And the, our whole, the way we got it bootstrapped is we started a business. We had about... It was, we were trying to get to a bench of 20 PhD data scientists. I think the most we ever had was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13. But the idea was get to a pe- bench of four uh, of contract data scientists. They were all 1099s. And we could find, we were seeing really unique opportunities in my first company to do simple, what I would call almost like data janitor work, just simple ETL processes and simple math. Like that's all people wanted. And so- these data scientists, all they wanted to do was work on really cool projects. And the most of them had full-time jobs and they were bored. And so we saw this, this sort of arbitrage opportunity to like find really cool projects. And we worked with everything from publicly traded companies. We had government contracts. We had, I mean, it was, it was pretty wild, some of the stuff we did, but uh, it was super fun. And the idea was, you know, turn the, the revenue from that services business into a little nest egg that we could then use to prototype a product that was informed by the services that we were doing. And we started to get to the point where we were, you know, kind of building quasi lightweight product, but then the revenue of the business, you know, was so good that we're like, well, maybe we should just take a draw and take a salary instead of instead of investing in product and that's ultimately what my partner and I ended up doing and it was one of the reasons why I was able to you know move to Montana because it was 
a nice source of passive income with, you know, that I could do remotely. And of course, nowadays, once again, you can say, well, you could do anything remotely. But at the time, like it wasn't, it wasn't that simple in 2014. So that's how it ended. But that could have easily been, had I really had it in my heart and emotion to do it, we could have done it. We could have launched a product and gone toe to toe with Looker. And, you know, I don't think we would have won, but you know, that's you could have tried, right? (laughs) But that's, if you don't try, you don't, you, you won't, you'll never, you'll never do it. So there's, I would just say, there's always a way. And some of it is navigating, you know, your network, your your relationships. And it's, the funny thing is, it's all the same stuff. Like the litmus test for building the prototype and, and getting customers is all the same type of persona and attitude and, and that we want in a founder to begin with. So it's sort of, it's sort of a kind of a self fulfilling prophecy for founders to begin with. And so I I think if you really truly are driven, you just need to, you just need to push hard and find, find the resources to do it. And, and let me tell you, there are people doing it in Montana, so don't mm-hmm. use that as an excuse. They're I see it there. every day. Yeah, they're out there. Yeah, and even with COVID too, I think it kind of accelerated that. We're starting to see, you know, this shift where a founder in Montana can get pre-seed seed funding, pre-product from out of the state. There's opportunities out there. The accelerators. There's there's just all sorts of scrappy oh, ways yeah. to do it. Where you know, I mean, pre Next Frontier, like I I sit here and wonder, like. I don't know if it would have been possible next frontier coming to Montana to for a founder to get that kind of funding from out of the state but today it is and yep. we kind of live in a different world. So I have one last question about the fund and then I really want to talk about your background cuz it's so interesting. When you are looking at a deck, I I've helped many founders through a deck. I think it's the most painful process ever. <laughs> I'm, I mostly dislike it. Tell me, what are you looking for? What, or even in that process, like talk to me about, so a founder approaches you, what do you want them to have? Yeah. How do they be succinct about it? Can you give us some tips there? Yeah. So I, you know, the funny thing for me is I typically, I get interested in, you know, I get a scent a deck and I'm I'm usually intrigued more by the product or the solution or the space, and it it just piques my interest. But I never I, I never see a deck and say like, oh man, this is a this is a deal we need to do right. E- even if even if like the financials or something is just off the charts, I I always my one of my kind of favorite questions or or favorite ways to approach any new opportunity is, you know, I set up the meeting with the founder and the first question I always ask them is, tell me your story. And to me, that is the essence of whether or not I'm really going to spend the time and dig into the diligence. Because there's so much in a story that you just, it's intangible how it relates to the founder's ability to be successful. But I want to hear I want to hear where they grew up. I want to hear what their hobbies are, what their interests are. I want to hear, like, when I say, tell me your story, I don't want to know the, I don't want to know, you know, where you found, you know, oh, we founded the company in 20. And actually, if people start there, I'm usually, I lose interest right away. I want to know who the person is. And, and that's, to me, that's just one of the most important pieces in the journey of the relationship that you just, you just can't, you can't get it anywhere else in a deck or anything other than having the conversation and asking the question. 
Mm, that's so great. And what a great transition for me to tee <laughs> yourself up. Les, tell yeah, me tell your, me your story. story. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Oh, careful what you ask for. So I was, I was born in uh, Erie, Pennsylvania to a, a working class family. My, my father was an artist and a jeweler. My mother was a, a secretary at a law firm. And my, my, my upbringing was, was a humble one, but it was, you know, it was very much driven by wanting to be successful, wanting to, you know, have a great life for my children. My parents were wonderful parents. I mean, they were so involved in their, in their, in our lives as children. And, you know, I said, first and foremost in life, that's what I want to do. I want to be, you know, a parent someday, but I also... I saw people in my community that had this kind of next level of, you know, just lifestyle. And I said, I want to work hard because that's what I want. I used to, my mom's boss, I used to, I used to go to his house from when I was 10 years old, all the way up till I graduated high school. Every Saturday I'd go to his house, I'd wash his car, I'd do yard work. And he was a, he was a lawyer. He lived on the lake and in Erie. And I was like, this is what I want. I want this lifestyle. I didn't want to be a lawyer though. I actually wanted to be a doctor. So I I was like really into math and chemistry. So I really wanted to go to Notre Dame and I got in early admission and I ended up turning it down and ended up going to West Point instead. And the reason why was because just from a, it was just the affordable option for my family because West Point's free. Well, (laughs) free until you pay it a nickel at a time over the five-year commitment that you have to the army. But in my, from my vantage point, I said, look, I can go to, go to do my pre-med at West Point. I can, you know, after the, after the, you know, be an army doctor, what's the difference? And so I got in, as I got into my coursework at West Point, first of all, I decided I did not want to be in the army, even if I was a doctor. And then I decided I didn't even want to be a doctor because I just didn't have the same passion that, you know, kind of look, look to your right, look to your left. I wanted to be out like hiking and like hanging out on the weekends and everybody else wanted to make like organic chemistry synthesis flashcards. And I'm like, okay, I I don't know if I, I don't know if I have, I think the medical profession does a good job of weeding people out that are in love with the idea of, of being a medical professional, but not really in love with what it takes. So anyway, I dropped that major, picked up applied math. And then I I was about to transfer to Notre Dame and I got accepted and I was going to transfer. It's my sophomore year. And after you go to your first day of classes, your junior year at the academy, you're locked in to a service commitment. Even if you don't finish, you have a five-year commitment. And especially if you don't finish, you get you get enlisted. <laughs> so if you finish and you get committed, commissioned, you, you become an officer. So anyway, I went to my tactical officer. He said, I said, here's, you know, I want to fill out the paperwork. I want to leave. He said, why do you want to leave? I said, I don't want to be in the army. I thought that's like a foolproof answer. He said, you don't know what the army's like. You need to go see it and experience it first. I said, okay, whatever, sir. <laughs> I probably didn't say it like that, but that's what I was thinking. And so he said, I'll tell you what, I'll send you to an army unit this summer. You pick anywhere in the world. And when you come back from that trip, we'll sign your paperwork if you still don't want to be in the army. So I said, anywhere? Well, I've never, I'd never traveled outside the country. I said, I want to go to, I actually said I wanted to go to Italy because there's an army base there. He said, we don't have Italy slots, but I'll send you to Germany. He sent me to a German medevac unit. I got to fly all up and down the Rhine river every day. I was 20 years old. So, and at West point, you know, dry campus, I had, you know, like never had a sip of beer. I'm going to like German clubs and breweries at night. I'm like, this army thing is pretty great. (laughs) And so I came back to West point. I was like, sir, you were so right. I want to be in the army. And then in August of 2001, I went to my first class at West point. So I locked in my service commitment and a month later was September 11th, 2001. And it was, it was a day that definitely changed my life because of what was about to unfold after that. I got commissioned an infantry officer. I was 
I spent 30 months deployed as an airborne platoon leader and then as a ranger platoon leader. I got shot in Afghanistan in 2005. I suffered a pretty serious injury that I went untreated for about seven years. And it was really, you know, meeting my wife, having a family that really, really did a lot to to save my life. And it was it was through the process of healing and then eventually coming to Montana for a, a veteran program that really got me focused back on what was important in life and led me eventually, that was in 2012, and, and led me on a journey with the family in 2015 to, to move to Montana because this is where we wanted to build a life and, and raise our family. So it was a pretty pretty wild journey from you know Erie, Pennsylvania to uh, Bozeman, Montana, but this is home now. <laughs> so... I love it. We're so we're so lucky to have you here. I know there's so many of us that have really enjoyed getting to know you over the years. Thank you for sharing your story. Les, do you mind if I transition us to the rapid fire questions? Please do. Wonderful. What are you looking forward to in the next 30 days? Wow. So I've got uh, the next 30 days, I've got a a couple really fun one-on-one things with my children. So my son has a soccer tournament in Denver. So we're going down there to play in the soccer tournament and they have a really competitive team this year. So that's exciting. And then I come back from that and I have a a daddy-daughter backpacking trip in Yellowstone. And so, and then because I've got those two big one-on-one trips, I've got to find something that I'm going to do one-on-one with my six-year-old. Because she, she turns seven when I'm in Denver. So that'll be a surprise even to me, but that's that's what I'm looking forward to. <laughs> that's amazing. I, I grew up a Montana soccer player, so I know the Denver tournament. Oh, it was like yeah. the highlight of the summer every year. So, so fun. That's great. If Next Frontier shut down for a week and you could do anything with your time but work and not going on trips with your kids so you can't duplicate, <laughs> what would you do with that time? Ah, interesting. You know, I would I would do something that I have not done in a long time, actually since I moved from Baltimore. And I would I would go blow glass for a week. You didn't expect that, did you? I didn't. This <laughs> is te- a new hobby. I'm I'm te- <laughs> so I'm terrible at art. I love art. I love making art, but I'm I'm just I just don't have the confidence to do it. But I, I took some glass blowing lessons at Cordetti in Baltimore and I developed such this like passion for it because it's the one art that I'm actually good at. And I think it's because it's the only art that you don't, you can't touch with your hands. You can only (laughs) touch it with your breath. So as long as my hands are out of the equation, I'm okay at art, I guess. Oh, that's so cool. That's super fun too. Um, I've taken a class and really engaging. Wonderful. Anything binge-worthy in your life right now? Books, podcasts, shows, things you're learning? Yeah, I would say I'm a pretty, I'm I'm an audible person. So I, I do a lot of, I kind of binge on books. I just... Well, a few weeks ago, I finished uh, The Three-Body Problem, all three books in that series. Wild to check out if you're into sci-fi and very philosophical book. And right now I'm listening to This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, which is a cybersecurity, a really interesting, interesting book on zero-day threats. Actually quite relevant given what just happened with the dark dark side in the, in the pipeline in the southeastern United States, so... Yeah. yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I don't think we mentioned this, but your one of your past startups is in cybersecurity, correct? Yeah. Yes, it cool. is. Yep. Red Owl Analytics. This is yep. your thing. Awesome. Who is someone you really look up to in life right now? Mm. Right now? I would say Will and Richard are both have been tremendous mentors to me. I, I just, you know, 
they're, they're both, they're two people. I just always look forward to coming into the office and seeing and, you know, what the opportunity that they've given me and, and, and the risk taking on someone as junior as me, but teaching, having the confidence and faith in me to learn how to do venture, to just mentor me daily. I just, and they're both so different. That's what I love about both of them. They, they both are, are just a tremendous, a tremendous mentors in my life. And I would say they're, they're people I look up to. I also, you know, in terms of looking up, but looking down, like I, I really admire what my children are doing right now and look up to their trajectories because of just their willingness to try things and try new things. It's something that as a child, I just didn't, I didn't do, but, but they are, you know, my son just started playing hockey and, it, you know, I was kind of questioning the decision at first, but he's phenomenal at it. And I love the fact that he's like, dad, I want to play hockey. I'm like, okay, we'll try this. So there's just that, that sense of spirit. And I think Montana has had a lot to do with that with all my kids, like just the sense of free spirit and try things and get after it. That's so cool. Yeah. My kids are amazing too. They're, I, w- I hope I could grow up and be like them. <laughs> I changed this next question a little bit for you. Okay. Do you ever miss being a founder? I do. I, I think, you know, it's similar. It's funny. It's almost exactly, I would answer it almost exactly the same way as I would answer the question, do you miss being in the army? And it's like, I miss the day to day. And most importantly, I miss like the people because there's just the sense of intimacy as a founder that you get. But what I love about what I do now is I'm, is it's not the 24 seven on as a VC you know, you have to pay attention to everybody and, and across the portfolio, all your founders. So I get, I get these sort of, you know, burst sprints where I get to be involved and interact with founders in a really intimate way. But I, at the same time, I can, you know, have a normal weekend or, you know, go home to my family at night. And I admire the founders, I mean, that, that are just, they're just burning the oil 24 seven and because that's what it takes. But, you know, there, there'll be a, there'll be another chapter to the, you know, to their lives someday. So it's, it's not a forever thing, but I think it's, you know, it's certain, it's a timing thing in life when it makes sense to do that and be a founder. So I, I don't, I would never really go back, but that makes sense. I still miss it. Last question. What is a current challenge you're facing? You know, I, I think on the, on the personal front, a challenge I'm on one hand, it's, it's, I would say challenge is more of, it's kind of more of an opportunity, but you know, my wife today is actually May 14th is uh, her last day as the CEO of the commit foundation. And so on a, on a personal and professional level, she has had an amazing run with that organization over the past 10 years. She's ready to do something else, but I think as a couple navigating next steps and being supportive of her is something that's going to take, you know, take time. It's going to take patience, but it's going to take a lot of work. So I, I wouldn't say call it necessarily a challenge as so much an opportunity for us as a couple, but there's a lot to unfold there and figure out. And I, we're sure. going to, you know, we'll be doing that together. So it's exciting. Yeah. Well, for everyone listening, Anne-Marie is a total badass. We <laughs> are so excited to see what she does next because anyone that knows her knows that she only does amazing things. So very excited for her. That's right. To, to end, thank you so much for being on the show, Les. I just think you're awesome. I'm so grateful to have you as a friend, to have you in the startup community in Montana. Like you really do make me like proud of what the startup community is doing because you're such a great person. Tell our audience where they can find you and Next Frontier Online, please. Thanks, Steph. And I, I feel the same way. So I love what you're doing and, and just so grateful that you're getting, you know, getting getting the word about out about all the great things that are happening in the state. And you're you're a part of most of that. So congrats to you as well. Anyway, so to get in touch with me at Montana VC on Twitter, or the best way to get in touch with me is 
just show up at the office someday in Bozeman, Next Frontier Capital. We're currently at 201 South Wallace. Show up, say hi, let's go grab a coffee or lunch and hope to see everybody soon. Awesome. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to foundintherockies.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop. See you next time.